Let us turn in our text uh, this Lord's Day back to Daniel chapter 7. Verses 15 through 22. Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 through 22. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the, of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Biblical prophecy is not given to us uh, in order to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It is given rather to exalt the Lord our God who declares the end from the beginning. Biblical prophecy, dear ones, is given to demonstrate who it is that rules and reigns over all of creation and over all of history, namely Jesus Christ. It is given not to lead us to fear what may be in the future, but rather biblical prophecy, even when it has dire prophecies of tribulation and distress that are yet to come, it is given to us that we might cast our hope in him who controls time, who controls all of those events and has ordained those events that are to come And who has told us, as we see in Daniel chapter 7, that he is the one who will ultimately crush, destroy all his enemies. Yes, there will be, indeed, times of tribulation throughout history. But we are promised 
that we will, by God's grace, not by our own strength, we will, as God's people, we will persevere through Christ. We will be victorious in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, we are not defeatists. Rather, we are, as, as Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. And that is what we learn. That's what we ought to be taking away from this study as we go through biblical prophecy that, that it is Jesus Christ who conquers, who rules, who is king of kings and who will crush all his enemies who will convert the nations and draw the nations unto himself, who will put down that papal antichrist in all false religion and will exalt the one true religion that is given to us in biblical revelation. And as we continue our study then through Daniel 7 today, let's consider the following two main points from our text. First of all, the general interpretation of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, verses 15 through 18. And then the second main point, Daniel's desire for further clarification of the fourth beast, a more specific interpretation. Uh, general interpretation first, and then Daniel wants more specific interpretation in the second main point in regard to the fourth beast, the ten horns and the little horn, in verses 19 through 22. So the first main point, the general interpretation of Daniel's vision, Daniel 7, verses 15 through 18. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever even forever and ever. As Daniel has received the divine vision of four beasts and God's judgment that fell upon them through the Son of Man, which we considered last Lord's Day in Daniel 7, in the last couple Lord's Days, uh, Daniel 7 verses 1 through 14, so he now receives the divine interpretation of what he had beheld in that vision, which the latter part of the interpretation begins in verse 15 of Daniel 7 and continues to the end of this chapter, the interpretation. First, the vision, and then, again, the interpretation of the vision. <clears throat> Daniel here describes how the prophetic vision and what he saw in this vision, how it grieved, how it troubled him in his spirit. And we ask uh, 
Why? In verse 15, why did it so trouble Daniel? Well, I think that it troubled him because what he saw in the vision was quite, again, astounding, amazing. Uh, these beasts, um, uh, he sees even more, as we'll see in just a, a, a moment, even more he sees uh, in the vision. But it, it was uh, quite astonishing uh, what he saw by way of these uh, cruel beasts and and they're crushing and destroying, and especially, as we'll see, the fourth beast. At least that was the case until there was some clear understanding, and I think that's probably why he was so troubled, because he did not have clear understanding as to the interpretation of these symbols that he had seen in his vision. He was in some state of perplexity. What does all this mean, basically? As he saw all of these images in symbolic form. You know, Daniel, as a sincere believer in the Lord, wanted to know the meaning of these symbols that he had seen in the vision. He was not content to have seen the vision and to have seen the symbols and simply to leave it at that, he wanted to know what they meant. He wanted to have understanding of those symbols. And I, I, I ask us, each one, is that true of us? Do we just read God's word and then walk away without understanding? as if Daniel were to see the vision and just to walk away and be content with just seeing the symbols without understanding? Is that how we approach the reading of God's word, that we simply just read it and say, well, I read God's word for today, and to walk away? Uh, or do we, like Daniel, want to know what those words, those letters that form those words, what they mean, how they apply to us, how they apply to me personally, how they apply to my family and to my church and to this nation and to the world. Do I want to have understanding? In other words, dear ones, do we dig, do we mine the word of God as if this were buried treasure? And we are going, and we are going to begin to, to find this buried treasure, to look for it, to bring it out. Is that how we view the truth in God's word as buried treasure? Or can we just simply leave it there and just be content to not do any further searching and to understand what God's word is saying? Well, if we're going to be digging in God's word, as if it were buried treasure, we're going to need to pray for the Spirit's illumination of our understanding. We're going to need to ask the Lord, help me to understand what the word of God is saying. Because this is a book that is not like any other book. This is a book that has been given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us understanding. So if we do not begin there, we're not going to understand what he has inspired. Do we 
then pray for that illumination and understanding. Do we also then uh, check out the cross-references in our Bible? Most of our Bibles have cross-references to other places in the Bible where either the same concept or truths or words are used. Do we care enough to begin to, to check out even those cross-references in seeking to understand the truth of God's word? And then uh, do we even go beyond that uh, to read what sound biblical teachers in past history and present time have said about that because God has given to his church, according to Ephesians 4, pastors and teachers. Paul says, so that we won't be blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes. He's given to us throughout history sound biblical teachers to help us to understand what his word teaches. And so likewise, we will, by God's grace, we have much by way of, of uh, uh, their writings, sound biblical teachers, pastors, uh, doctors of the church that uh, have left to us what they have themselves read and, and uh, the truths that they have found in God's word. Again, those are available to us as well. Do we use them? Or are we content to simply uh, leave the pages of Scripture with just words that we don't have any idea what they mean? If we don't take these steps, the words on the pages of the Bible will be meaningless to us, as meaningless as the symbols in the vision were to Daniel without any interpretation as to what those symbols meant. So what did Daniel do? Well, we see in verse 16, Daniel 7, 16, we see that he goes to one of the angels that are nearby in the vision. He, he's in the vision. Daniel's in this vision. And in the vision, he's a part of the vision. And he goes to one of the angels that he sees in the vision to ask that angel to interpret for him uh, the meaning of the symbols, which again, uh, the angel does in verse 16. So he told me, that is the angel told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. And this is basically the general interpretation the four beasts are, are four earthly kings in verse 17. These great beasts, the interpreting angel says, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. And uh, we see in verse 23, Daniel 7, 23, though it says in, <clears throat> in verse 17, that they are kings, it says in verse 23 that they're kingdoms. And so we see that the word kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably uh, here. So whether it's four kings, which represent four kingdoms, or whether it's ten uh, horns, which are ten kings and represent ten kingdoms, they're used interchangeably. And these four, these four beasts, which represent four kingdoms we've looked at already. They are Babylon, 
Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, which we've noted are par parallel to the image in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar received back in Daniel chapter 2, the various parts of that image. It's interesting that basically in, in these four beasts, as well as in the four metallic parts of that image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, basically is all of the history. Very shortened in just a few words, but has encompassed all of the history from the time of Babylon until the time that Jesus establishes uh, the glorious and conspicuous um, outworking of his kingdom where all nations come uh, to be converted and brought into the visible church of Jesus Christ. It encompasses all that history in, in these four beasts. A lot of history uh, that is taken into account here, beginning with Babylon and stretching out. The fifth kingdom uh, is the kingdom of the Son of Man. The four earthly kingdoms and then the kingdom of the Son of Man, the kingdom of heaven that comes in all of its glory uh, to be, it, it's present already, but it will, uh, at that time, when the Lord Jesus Christ, as he reigns from heaven during the millennial kingdom, he will show forth the glory of that kingdom in a way that it has not been shown forth, uh, even uh, at the present time or even any time in history up to this point. And so that's the fifth kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man, which will crush uh, the fourth beast, Rome, that has the ten horns and a little horn that appears in the midst of the ten horns. In verse 18, we see that crushing um, and de destroying, God sets up his, his kingdom uh, through the Son of Man, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as we said, this is the millennial kingdom. And uh, there are many passages uh, that speak of this glory of Christ's kingdom in Psalm 22, verses 27 through 28, where it says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds, that is the families of the nations, shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. And likewise in Revelation 11:15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So that's the general interpretation. But Daniel wants to know further what uh, is the interpretation of the fourth beast, the ten horns and the little horn? And so the interpreting angel uh, gives to him more information, as we shall see. So in verses 19 through 22, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass, which devoured 
break in pieces and stamp the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now in the vision, Daniel's particular desire is to know the truth about the fourth beast, which is Rome, as we've already seen. That uh, beast that was so terrible, dreadful, that no name of an animal is even attached to the fourth beast. It's simply described as being dreadful and terrible. It's, here we see uh, that it has teeth of iron, in verse 19, nails of brass. Uh, it breaks in pieces, it stamps the residue with its feet. So this seems to be a, of, the four, of the four beasts, the most dreadful and terrible of the beasts that are mentioned there. <clears throat> Moreover, Daniel sought to know from the angel what the ten horns on the fourth beast and the little horn among the ten horns signified in verse 20. Well, we've already, in past sermons, uh, we've, we've already anticipated, to some degree, uh, the interpretation here given by the angel to these symbols. <clears throat> we've kind of, in past ser recent sermons, we've kind of gone ahead uh, to understand more about these beasts and the uh, the little horn, the ten horns, and we've given some explanation, but I think what I'd like to do is just uh, summarize uh, for us just what we have learned uh, thus far. So in summary, the ten horns are ten kings or kingdoms, according to the angel in verse 24, which will, we, this really is a part of the sermon next Lord's Day, but uh, the angel, the interpreting angel says in the ten horns, out of this kingdom, that is out of the, the Roman Empire, the, Ro the fourth beast, are ten kings, uh, or as we've noted, ten kingdoms that shall arise. And then uh, uh, we'll look at the little horn in just a moment. But these ten kings divide uh, the Roman Empire uh, into... A, uh, various kingdoms, whereas the Roman Empire in the West was united, uh, it is divided into various uh, kingdoms by way of these barbarian uh, invasions uh, during the 5th and the 6th centuries. And uh, we noted that those ten kingdoms are the, the Hurguli, Ostrogoths, Lombards, the Visigoths, the Suevi, Franks, 
Burgundians, Anglo-Saxons, Vandals, and the Alemanni. We've also, uh, in past sermon, gone to consider, uh, in association with these ten kingdoms, uh, the time frame in which they would appear uh, on the head of the fourth uh, beast, the Roman Empire. Uh, would they be before the first century? Would they be during the first century? Or would they be after the first century? Well, they cannot uh, be before the first century. They cannot refer to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes as, as some biblical scholars um, desire us to, to think. Uh, nor can they be uh, referring to Roman emperors uh, that were ruling uh, before the time of John the Apostle or uh, at the time of John the Apostle in the first century. Uh, they cannot refer and include Nero. Uh, they have to be after the time of John the Apostle because in Revelation 17, 12, we find again a re reference to the ten horns. Uh, John's, John, uh, we see, uh, indicates there in the revelation given to him, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. And so here again, uh, these are referring to uh, something not yet uh, revealed. Uh, they have not yet received their power to rule at the time that John is writing in the first century. They come after the first century. And I think that, uh, again, that fits very well with what we see, these ten barbarian tribes dividing the Roman Empire uh, in West. In, in Western Europe at that time. Furthermore, uh, we read in verse 24, Daniel, I'm sorry, in Daniel 7:20, that three, three of these horns uh, fall before this little horn. And uh, again, we see that the three kingdoms that fell before the little horn uh, were the Hurrieli, which were wiped out in 493, the Vandals in 534, and the Ostrogoths were eliminated in 538. Most of these were Aryan, Aryan um, uh, uh, tribes and kingdoms. That is, uh, they were not orthodox in their view of Jesus Christ, but believed that uh, Jesus Christ uh, was a created being. And again, they were destroyed. Um, at that time, uh, at the time uh, that the ten horns uh, were there uh, and the little horn appeared among them, uh, there were three that were destroyed. Uh, that fits again very well uh, with uh, what we know occurred historically in the fifth and the sixth centuries as well. <clears throat> Thus, if the ten horns that divided the Western Roman Empire during the 5th and 6th centuries are 
correctly identified here, as, as we've sought to do, and that the three that fell, the three horns that fell at that time, are also correctly identified, then the question remains, who is the little horn that grows up in the midst of them? And again, with many biblical scholars, past and present, uh, uh, that uh, by way of an interpretive system is called historicism, uh, there basically are three main categories of, of uh, prophetic interpretation. Uh, there are what are called preterists, uh, who view basically the, uh, most of the book of Revelation as having been fulfilled or at the time of John the Apostle the in the first century. Uh, there are uh, futurists who see most of the prophetic revelation yet to be fulfilled, even most of it to be fulfilled in our time yet to come. They're called futurists. And historicists would be the system of interpretation that sees the fulfillment throughout history. Uh, and that would be, again, the system of interpretation, I believe, most uh, accurately describes the fulfillment of prophecy that we find uh, in Daniel as well as in the book of Revelation. And so uh, the, uh, the little horn, uh, with many biblical scholars past and press, uh, present historicists by way of the system of interpretation, uh, I agree with that system that this little horn is the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church. Let's put our very, uh, very briefly, try to bring all of this together, uh, the evidence um, for this little horn being uh, the papacy uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. First of all, we see here that the papacy, or that the little horn, sits upon the head of the fourth beast, which is the Roman beast. Okay, it sits upon the head. Uh, the papacy is, in fact, an extension of the fourth beast. Uh, what is the capital of the papacy? Is it not the same as was the capital of the Roman Empire uh, uh, when it was a united Roman Empire? Uh, Rome, it's the same capital. Uh, we also see, uh, just uh, by way of it being the, um, the uh, connection between the little horn and the fourth beast, the title that was given and assumed uh, by the emperor of Rome was Pontifus Maximus. That was the title, which means supreme priest in Latin. Uh, the emperor assumed that particular title because in emperor worship, uh, he was viewed as being the supreme priest uh, in that Roman uh, religion of emperor worship. And it's the exact same title that's assumed by the papacy. The papacy assumes the same title and calls itself Pontifus. Not, not somebody else calling the papacy. The papacy assumes that title, Pontifus. Maximus, the same title that the Roman emperors assumed. 
Next, we see that uh, what's described here in Daniel 7, 8 is that uh, it's a little horn. And so the, uh, likewise, uh, which means a little power, a horn represents a, a, a power, um, an authority, a power that is, that is ruling. But it begins here in the, in the vision as a little horn. Uh, and the papacy, again, began small, uh, basically confined as the bishop to Rome, the bishop of Rome. But it extends over the centuries uh, its power to encompass more and more of the known world at that time, particularly uh, in Western Europe. It increased in power through the centuries. And as we've already noted, three horns, uh, three kingdoms uh, were subdued by means of the papacy's influence. The, these Aryan kingdoms were subdued by means of the papacy's influence, the little horn's influence. Next, uh, the papacy grew in power uh, so that it became, uh, it says of this horn, it became in verse 20, became more stout, interesting, more stout, which is again to say stronger, more strong than the other kingdoms. So it starts off a little horn, it grows to become more stout, stronger than the other kingdoms. Even claiming, as the papacy does, even claiming a power over kings and over kingdoms. Let me give you an example, and there, again, history is filled with, with these types of examples, but let me give you one example. When uh, Pope Innocent III came to power in 1198, he declared, and I quote, Who am I myself, or what was the house of my father, that I am permitted to sit above kings? to possess the throne of glory. Pope Innocent III excommunicated King John of England in 1209. And when he did so, he absolved all of England's citizens of paying any allegiance to King John by way of this excommunication. He said, basically, you owe no allegiance now to the king. He's been excommunicated. Uh, that's the power that the Pope exercised uh, in his glory days by way of power that he did that we see historically. The, the Pope, in fact, the same Pope, Innocent III, he deposed uh, King John from the throne uh, in 1212. And he encouraged uh, King Philip of France to invade, to invade England. The fear of that brought King John to his knees before the Pope. And in 1212, Pope Innocent III made null and void forever, according to his papal bull. His bull, a bull is a declaration of the Pope. 
by way of his papal bull in 1212, he made null and void forever the Magna Carta, which grants to English freedmen, uh, doesn't establish God is the one who gives rights, but it, but it confirms the rights of English citizens. And the Pope declared that he made the Magna Carta null and void. You see, uh, that's, the, that's the power uh, of the papacy, historically. The ecclesiastical and political power is even recognized to the present day uh, throughout the world of the papacy. From the Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature, we read, from the 10th century, popes have claimed and repeatedly exercised the power of coercing kings and have punished them when refractory, by, when they weren't willing to submit to the king, in other words, by suspension, by deprivation, and by the transfer of the allegiance of their subjects, the citizens. That's a lot of power. Uh, so again, when we speak here of the, the power of this little horn, um, again, we see in history exactly uh, that the... Uh, that is manifested uh, in the papacy. A power over all of these kingdoms. We also see in the, what is said here, not only that, the, uh, that this little horn was more stout than the other ten horns, but also we see that the, the little horn has eyes has eyes. Again, eyes speak of insight and knowledge. Papacy claims to have eyes. Uh, in fact, the papacy claims to have infallible knowledge. Infallible knowledge in matters of faith and morals. For example, in the catechism, the, the Catholic Church's own catechism, we read the following. The Roman pontiff, pontiff again is the English for pontifex. Pontifex, you know, we talked about pontifex maximus. Well, here it uses that very term, the Roman pontiff. Uh, the head of the College of Bishops enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office when as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful, who confirms his brethren in the faith, he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals, infallibility when it comes to his supposed knowledge. Yes, he has eyes. He claims to have infallible eyes, that he cannot err. It's impossible for him to err in matters that he declares with regard to faith or morals. We also see in Daniel 7, 8, uh, that uh, the little horn said to speak great things, as well as in verse 20, a mouth that spake great things, as well as in verse 25, 
and he shall speak great words against the Most High. So again, uh, this is a characteristic of the little horn. Does this fit with the papacy, speaking great things about uh, itself, its office? Well, this, this comes from uh, um, Pope John XXIII in his homily to the bishops and faithful assisting at his coronation on November the 4th, 1958. Pope John the 23rd says, the Savior himself is the, is the door of the sheepfold. I am the door of the sheep. Into this fold of Jesus Christ, no man may enter unless he be led by the sovereign pontiff. And only if they be united to him can they be saved? For the Roman pontiff is the vicar of Christ and his personal representative on earth. Speaking great things, um, what would you do if I was speaking like that? Would you walk out? I hope you'd walk outside and have nothing more to do with me to say there uh, is one who is an antichrist seeking to take the place of Christ. In his encyclical called The Reunion of Christendom in 1885, Pope Leo XIII stated that the Pope holds, quote, upon this earth the place of God Almighty, end of quote. Place of God Almighty, vested in the papacy. Yes, he speaks great things, and we could go on and on and on about the great things, blasphemies at uh, the papacy, as the little horn speaks. We also see concerning this little horn that we read that it, in verse 24, is diverse from the other horns. Notice, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, from the first ten, and he shall subdue three kings. So is the papacy diverse from these other ten political, civil kingdoms? Yes, the papacy is First and foremost, an ecclesiastical kingdom. It is diverse, but it assumes political power throughout the world and exercising its influence and power over, over nations, over rulers, over kingdoms. It is diverse. Uh, it fits that as well, the little horn does, as being fulfilled in the papacy. And then we read in verse 21 about the little horn. I beheld in the same horn, that is the little horn, made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Uh, the papacy, through its alliance with kings and rulers and ruling uh, even over uh, kings and rulers, has made war against the faithful saints throughout the ages and has prevailed against them. 
in accordance with what is said in Daniel 7.21. It has made war against faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, uh, declaring anyone who disagrees with the Pope as being heretics deserving of death if they don't repent, if they do not acknowledge uh, the infallibility of the papacy historically. Those historically, dear ones, who have refused to bow in giving the worship and, and obedience, absolute obedience to the Roman papacy, and have resisted his usurped authority of Christ's titles, namely calling himself the vicar of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, assuming and, and usurping those titles of Jesus Christ and his rights alone. They claimed, he claims to forgive sins. The papacy claims to forgive sins. When the Bible says clearly, God alone can forgive sins. And when faithful witnesses throughout the ages have resisted that, they have been by the hundreds of thousands imprisoned, slaughtered in their homes and in the fields, men, women, and children. The Waldensians being a Christian society that were, that were sought to entirely wipe out because they resisted the papacy. Tortured with unimaginable cruelties called before, and we won't go into all of the details with, with regard to that, but some of the, uh, some of the cruelties, um, uh, in fact, the use of torture uh, against heretics was authorized in 1252 by Pope Innocent IV. But some of the uh, examples of torture uh, having to do with uh, not only flogging, uh, the back, burning and mutilating various parts of the body, uh, putting people on a rack, stretching them, uh, pulling limbs out of joint by way of the rack, the boot that was put on the foot to crush the, the foot by way of pressure that was applied. Uh, all of these have been used to make war against the saints. Uh, and for the purpose of trying, they, they justify that, uh, that that is acceptable in order to get a confession so as to save the soul of the person by way of a confession, even at the point of this kind of torture and persecution, to confess uh, that, uh, that uh, the papacy uh, is uh, the vicar of Christ is the head of the church. And even when the war against the saints moves away from such forms of torture, we don't see uh, uh, in most parts of the world this, this form of, these forms of torture presently do, I would suggest, to 21st century sensibilities. Um, uh, the war continues, nevertheless, against the faithful witnesses of Christ in various countries. It continues. 
It continues by way of alliances uh, with nations uh, in the Great Reset to bring about a one world government, a one world religion in which those who profess the true religion will be targeted as troublemakers, as disruptors, as haters because we say no, we cannot accept, we cannot be tolerant and accept as being faithful and true um, that papal antichrist or what is being taught uh, by uh, that one world church or government. And there will be, again, uh, much that those who resist will have to pay, uh, who will not conform, who will not bow the knee to the beast and to the little horn. Next Lord's Day, God willing, we will consider the last two prophesied characteristics that we find in Daniel 7 that concern the little horn, that is the papacy. Uh, the first being uh, the papacy's uh, changing of times and seasons, uh, which again uh, is spoken of in the latter portion of Daniel 7. And then uh, the extended war, the length of this war, 1,260 years um, uh, against the saints, the faithful witnesses of Christ. We'll look at those two, God willing, next Lord's Day, and how uh, that's spoken of with regard to the little horn, and how that likewise, in both cases, is fulfilled by the Roman papacy, the papal um, uh, kingdom of Rome. A most important note to leave with you, let us not confuse the papacy with the people who are under the papacy, okay? We pray for the de prophesied destruction of the papacy. That's what we are to pray for. But we pray for the salvation of those who are under the papacy. Romans 18, I'm sorry, Revelation 18.4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. That is from the harlot of Rome. That harlot church of Rome. Come out from her. And so there is the invitation, there is the call to come out, because God has his people in the church of Rome, he calls them out. And so we pray for the destruction of that little horn, the papacy, but we pray for the salvation of those who are yet within the church of Rome. In conclusion then, let us not forget verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came, in other words, I beheld, verse 21, the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. We can read through the, what Daniel's just seen and what has been interpreted by the angel. And it can cause within us a, 
a kind of fear. Is this what's going to happen? I mean, it certainly is in part what has happened historically. Is this uh, in part what we will yet face? And I, I think that uh, indeed uh, that there are hard times uh, ahead. I don't know exactly when, but I do believe there are hard times yet ahead for God's people. Uh, and I do believe that there will be um, uh, the type of tribulation uh, that God's people have endured in the past, that we will see something similar to that in the future. Again, I don't know when that will come, but it does, it does cause within us perhaps a certain degree of anxiety as we consider that for us and our children, our grandchildren. But I, I think that what we need to focus on is, is the fact that, verse 22, that it's God that reigns. It's the Lord that's in control until the Ancient of Days came. When he says, it's enough, and he says that that, that fourth beast and the ten horns and that little horn should be destroyed, then he will bring his judgment through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will convert the nations, and he will establish his kingdom throughout the world when he comes to judge. From his throne in heaven, he sends his judgment upon uh, the little horn upon the papal antichrist. Dear ones, if our eyes can only see right now the growth, the spread, and the oppression of anti-Christian nations and false religion, especially that of the papal antichrist, then our view, if that's all we see, it's just the darkness, is all we see is the doom and the gloom that's all we see, then our view of Jesus Christ will be of a helpless, striving king that's trying ever so hard to rescue and save his people, but he just doesn't have the power to do so. He's just not strong enough to overcome the enemy if we only keep our eyes upon the enemy. We must keep our eye of faith, dear ones, our eye of faith and our hope upon our king, our glorious king, who is king of kings. We must increasingly learn to walk by faith and not by sight, not by our feelings, not by reports that we read. We can certainly make all due preparation. Nothing uh, certainly uh, would be wrong with doing that if we, it's always good to be prepared for any disaster that might come our way. But nevertheless, we're not called to panic. We're not called uh, to uh, be paralyzed with fear. It's so easy to become discouraged by what we read in the news and hear about by way of plots and plans and conspiracies of world leaders. It's easy to become discouraged by the daily trials, even in our own life, whether health issues and our families going through, uh, our, our families are going through 
these cycles of health issues or perhaps some chronic type of a problem uh, or terminal kind of a problem. It's, it's easy to be discouraged by um, various problems and conflicts within our home, our family, within our church. It's easy to be discouraged by what we see in, uh, by way of uh, uh, economic situation, uh, by way of more and more control o over what we do, what we say uh, in our lives. It's easy to be discouraged by the temptations that we face in our everyday life besetting sins. It's easy to be discouraged by all of these things. If we only keep our eye upon those things, we will be discouraged. We will not have hope. That is why we must be Christians who are walking by faith in God's promises that he is he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, Paul says in Ephesians 3.20. He is even able to show his almighty power in you, dear ones, regardless of what comes in your daily Trials. He's able to show his almighty power in you. And sometimes it's a greater display of God's power to give you the perseverance to remain faithful than to take you out of the situation that you're facing. To show that it's God that sustains you, that upholds you in the midst of all that you're going through. But he's able to supply that power, granting to you perseverance and not quitting, surrendering, giving up, and helping you to stand, and if you fall, to help you to stand seven times. God has revealed to us here in Daniel chapter 7 that we are not to be surprised, that we will suffer persecution and tribulation as faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul said in Acts 14.22 that, that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Not through no tribulation, not through a little tribulation, but through much tribulation we must enter into the kingdom of God. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12 and 13, Beloved, think it not strange, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. When you suffer for Christ, when you are going through trial and tribulation for being a Christian, and many times Satan is simply bringing into your life illness and other trials that you're facing, as he did with Job, because you are standing fast for the truth of Jesus Christ because you will not be moved. But when you suffer for Christ and for the truth of Christ, you show that you are united to Jesus Christ because he suffered and then he was crowned. First the cross, 
and then the crown. We want to get the crown before the cross, right? We don't have to go through the cross. We simply want to jump ahead to the crown. That's typical America. You know, again, uh, those, those in uh, certain parts of the world that suffer such persecution, they don't think that way. They realize it's first the cross and then the crown. And we must, again, begin to have more of a biblical understanding First the cross, then the crown. The fact that we suffer for Christ shows we are united to Jesus Christ. And then one last thought. Dear Christian, you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved you. You are not, as a Christian, you are not defeatists. You don't give up. You don't quit. You don't panic at what you see and hear going on about you because Jesus Christ is victorious. He's King of Kings. His kingdom, as we have been looking at, considering in Daniel 7, His kingdom will be victorious over all kingdoms. Jesus will put down all His and our enemies. For he will convert the nations and bring them to worship and serve him. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, how we praise thee for giving to us <clears throat> these biblical prophecies, for they do prepare us for times to come, things that have happened in history past, but also for that which will yet come in the future until Christ rules in such a glorious way that all the Nations of this world are converted and brought unto him. Lord, we pray that we would not be ruled and controlled by our emotions, feelings, by, uh, that we would not be ruled and controlled by reports, that, our, uh, that we would not be anxious uh, and uh, cast into a panic, but God, that we would again be thy people uh, who uh, understand that as thou was able to preserve Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of a fiery furnace because the Lord was with them, and as thou was able to preserve Daniel in the lion's den because thou was with him and did send thine angel to protect and preserve Daniel, so, Lord God, we are assured thou wilt be with us regardless of what we pass through. We ask, Lord, that our eyes would be firmly fixed upon Jesus, our King. Therein is our, is our hope. Uh, not, not in what we feel or see, but in Christ, our Savior, our King of Kings. Lord, uh, ever grant to us to walk uh, by faith in Him. 
In Jesus' name, amen.